So in our series in the book of Hebrews, uh, remember that we've just come out of that section where it's a challenge for us to look to Jesus. To uh, He's the one who begins and ends. He's the, the author and the finisher. He's the completer of our, whatever the word that is. He's the one who completes our faith. And we're called to consider him, to think on him, to take uh, careful consideration of him. Uh, and then also we were talking of, uh, in seeing the idea of us enduring. Uh, and that word to endure is, uh, has the word hyper in it, meaning it's like an overabundance, excessive standing. So to, to endure is to like hyper stand in a place and to stand firm. And so with, with that um, and looking at the, those who have walked before us in our faith uh, as the backdrop, we're going to get to a section here. Uh, that's a very sobering section of the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing passage of scripture. It, it's kind of like, a, as I stand up here, like I've got way too much to say. So we're going to be, we're going to just not cover everything that we could. Yet, I welcome you to go back, th- go back into it and look how God will speak uh, to you uh, as his child, uh, as a loving father. Uh, would pursue you. And so uh, so why don't we uh, stand as we just submit ourselves to the word of God uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3, where, where it calls us to consider Jesus. So consider him who endured uh, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, cha- the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all, of, uh, all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So let's pray. God, would you be with us? Would you speak to us through your word? Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you convince us of your great love for us, even in the midst of great difficulty, oftentimes that you bring into our life? 
So, Father, I pray that you'd be with us in our normal uh, way of responding to difficulty. God, challenge it and help us to see your goodness in it. Thank you, God, that your son came and endured the cross, shed his blood for our sin and for our salvation. God, thank you for that promise. And God, thank you for your goodness to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please be seated. So back in the early 1900s, a guy named Otto Rowetter, uh, he overheard a uh, familiar complaint among, um, among ho- homemakers uh, in trying to uh, feed their family and take care of their home. Uh, and basically, it was the fact that you know, they, they would make bread, and it was just such a burden uh, and time-consuming to actually slice the bread for the family. Okay, and uh, so he said, what if there would be a machine that would actually slice bread for people? Okay, and so he moved uh, uh, on this idea, and he sold his jewelry business, and, uh, and he embarked on a long, painful journey towards this concept and this invention. So in 1916, his first invention, his first prototype of a bread slicer uh, was made, and uh, and it failed. It didn't work right. And uh, so after that, he basically kind of locked himself into his warehouse that he had moved into or his business into. And for hours, uh, hundreds and hundreds of blueprints he sketched out and tried to refine his design, refine uh, uh, what he was thinking. And then later that year, in 1917, a fire broke out, burned his warehouse to, to the ground, and all of those hundreds of sketches of his design of his machine. And, uh, and so then he had to pick himself back up. And 10 years after that, in 1927... Uh, He built a new and improved bread slicing machine, uh, and nobody was interested. It was three feet by five feet. It was huge. It was massive, and, you know, nobody was interested until one uh, one friend stepped in and said, you know, I'll invest in in what you're doing there. And, And then the next year, 1928, was the first year that a loaf of commercially sliced bread was sold. He started in 1916, and it took him 12 years to get to, uh, to market with sliced bread. Sales obviously took off of sliced bread. And then 1930, a New York-based business uh, with the title of Wonder Bread, uh, um, they basically grew an empire of sliced bread. We often say that's the greatest thing since sliced bread, not having any clue that it was such a burden uh, for people to slice bread before the 1920s. Okay, this long walk of endurance, this, this man, you know, going through uh, failed attempts at his prototype, having his blueprints burned, uh, 10 years of who knows what in, in his process, people rejecting his idea, being probably laughed at, and then the empire of sliced bread grows. Endurance is this thing where we just keep going. It's the sense of continuing. It's the sense of we're going to keep pressing on. We're going to keep pressing through even though, even though everything in us says quit. It was like last week we looked at the marathoner. The marathoner at, at mile 20 says this is just not worth it. But yet they press on. And so as we look at that idea of struggle and just a reminder of a couple words that we looked at last week, uh, the idea 
Um, here in verse 4, the, the word for struggle is really that of a fight. It, the, the root it, it comes and we get our word antagonize. And so in your struggle, in your being antagonized, uh, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood. You haven't resisted to the point of blood. It's an, a long, ongoing struggle that we face in this life. You know, it's one thing to resist something for an hour. It's quite another to resist something for 48 hours straight, right? It's, it's not, that the, not that the struggle gets easier. It actually becomes more difficult. The longer you struggle, the longer you endure, the longer you are in something, uh, it is uh, more and more difficult. And our culture and, and our heart says all sorts of different things. We've heard a lot of things about suffering and maybe even uh, about the way suffering goes on for a long time. And, you know, kind of using the words of Jesus when he speaks to people, he says, you've heard it said. And then he goes on to speak something contrary to that. We have heard it said a lot of things about difficulty and struggle and all of that. Contrary voices that culture says. Contrary voices that, uh, that our heart is speaking to us. Um, you know, the voice of the world, and I would even say the voice of God's people, oftentimes. When you face some sort of struggle, some sort of difficulty, what is the first step? You remove the difficulty. That's the American way. Okay? Suffering, remove suffering. It, it, it's, it is definitely not endure it and stay in it. It's definitely not welcome difficulty and suffering as good. The American way, and even at times I think what we think is the biblical way, is to get out of difficulty. Because difficulty or struggle must mean it must mean that we chose the wrong path when we had a choice to make a decision. It must mean that we made an incorrect choice, or it must mean we've goofed something up. Because if I was in God's will, I wouldn't be suffering or facing difficulty. Has your mind or your heart ever told you that? It's bogus, but it, it's very much part of us. You know, diff difficulty, uh, at times, we think difficulty does not equal love. So if we're facing difficulty, then that must mean that someone is not loving us. You know, if they truly loved us, they would never bring struggle into our lives. Your heart tells you that all the time. Your mind tells you that. Culture tells you that. We hear, when we hear uh, difficulty, at times, this is what we think it means, that we're not loved, that we're worthless, that we're overwhelmed with shame, we're hopeless, we're numb, we're forgotten, we're abandoned. And even the psalmist gets to the place where he says, you know, oh Lord, why, you know, why have you forsaken me? How long will you forget me forever? We also think if I'm in the middle of difficulty, I must lack faith in some fashion. Your faith just might, might not be strong enough, and that's why you're in the middle of difficulty and struggle. That's what we hear. We've heard it said. We've heard, heard those things. We even sometimes try to convince ourselves of all that. And, and that difficulty leads to self-doubt, self-hatred. We ask ourselves this question. What did I do to cause this? And sadly, other people ask the question, What did you do to cause this? And quite honestly, at times, it's just an erroneous question. 
the contrary voice of culture in our heart would say a loving father would never bring difficulty into the lives of his children. Difficulty causes us to doubt the father, doubt his love, and doubt his goodness. So therefore, he would never bring difficulty into our lives. You may have heard that said. You may have thought that. You would never say, or you might think that a loving father would never push against your wants and your desires. You know, our culture asks the question, what do you want? What gender do you identify as? And the reality is, is a loving father actually pushes against our innate desires and wants. A loving father does not leave us where we are. You know, our world says your wants and desires reign supreme. That's not the world that God operates in. So you've heard it said, and then Jesus comes along, but I say to you. Uh, You've heard it said, but I say to you. And, And so our passage is the but I say to you part. The, the part that pushes against so much of what we think and what we, what we want to believe, that a loving father brings what you need, not what you want. That a loving father brings difficulty into your life because he loves you. He brings it oftentimes because our wants and our desires are misguided. And so since, this is, the, this is the great truth of that, since you and I are incomplete, because we're not finished products, because we are not yet full in, in the holiness that God wants to bring about, you will face struggles. Struggles not just because of your incompleteness, but struggles because God wants to refine your incompleteness and your brokenness. And God brings these things for our good. And so the Christian singer, Laura Story, she sings, you know, her, her most well-known song is the song Blessings. Um, and, and it's this passage put to music. You know, she asks the question and, and kind of says, you know, we pray for God in his mighty hand to ease our suffering, to take it away, lessen it. That's what we pray for. But she asks the question, what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? He talks about, uh, she talks about the mercies of God that are often hidden from us, that they come in ways that we would not expect, that they oftentimes come through difficulty and struggle. And so we've heard that, and, and so, so the, the writer of Hebrews drives into that idea of what uh, fatherly discipline looks like and why is it for our good. It's that in the midst of God's discipline that we easily forget his love for us. Look at verse 5. Okay? So he's writing, you haven't, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. Verse 5, have you forgotten The exhortation or the encouragement that addresses you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The idea we have forgotten, we, uh, you know, that some would would translate that we have forgotten entirely. We've become oblivious of. Uh, It's from the root of uh, this word is the idea of neglect or overlooking something. 
to, baby, uh, to basically have something be a secret or to escape notice. So God's people, you have forgotten. It has escaped your notice. It is overlooked by us that we are God's sons. Now, sons is repeated six times in verses 5 through 8. Okay? Let me submit to you, especially for the ladies in this, in this room, God is not taking away your femininity. God is not saying that you um, uh, have lost your place as a daughter and, um, and all of those things. But in that day and age, who, had, who was an heir of the father's fortune and the household? It was the son. In specific, the oldest son who had the place of honor in the family after the father. It was the oldest son, even before mom, okay? Uh, That was the cultural norm of that time. And so when when he's saying that that our status is the place of sons, he's not negating, uh, you know, the the idea of, uh, of you all being women before God. But what he is saying is your status is of the highest place that it could absolutely be. And so uh, our, our status is that of heirs. And, uh, and so don't forget that, even in verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives, whom he accepts, whom he welcomes. Uh, he receives. He, um, he disciplines and, and those that he loves. So in uh, verse 7, I love the NIV's translation, um, and uh, I read from the ESV. Uh, the, the NIV's translation of verse 7 is endure hardship as discipline. So in a sense, any hardship that you're facing, uh, endure it or consider it as the hardship that God brings as a discipline of a father to a son. And so I I love the first phrase of of that quote from verse 5. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So so to regard something lightly is just to kind of brush it off, um, you know, kind of to try to rush through it. This is, you know, we just got to, you know, bide our time. We're going to, you know, blitz through this. We're going to get through it. Uh, So don't regard lightly the discipline of God. Do you hear the American way? Suffering comes into your life. Get out of suffering as soon as possible. God says suffering comes into your life. Endure it as God's loving discipline for you. Very opposite, very different than what our culture would say. And it's, for us to not brush it off is an active process of living. And it pushes into all, those, all the uh, warnings that the writer of Hebrews has already unpacked. Chapter 2, don't drift well, to not drift, you've got to pay attention, right? You've got to press into not just regarding God's work lightly, but to be aware of it, to see it, to consider Jesus, to watch for him, to not harden our heart. Uh, it's a very active process of gospel living. But if you're under the midst, or if you're in the midst of difficulty and struggle and suffering and a difficult ordeal, after a while, how do you feel? worn out right we're we're just weary we we like the marathoner like the one who just has endured for a long time the the the, it's a natural thing that we would want to 
give up. But, his, but the writer of Hebrews is asking a question. Have you forgotten the encouragement that you are sons? And then my son, don't regard this lightly, nor be weary uh, when reproved by him. And so in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, this same concept comes up. You know, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's the sense of us enduring through what God brings into our life. It's an active process of gospel living. So it's always fun, sobering, probably a better word, uh, humbling, when people from other countries comment on Christianity in the United States. Because we live the life of, of abundance. The world looks at us and, you know, uh, so many want to get to this, uh, to this country. But one uh, church leader in, in Sri Lanka, uh, Ajith Fernando, uh, this is what his comment, it was a few years ago, but his comment about the American church, this was it. He says, I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt, right? There's like, you know, entire sections of bookstores written about that, right? We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there's an inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering, he says. He says, the good life comfort, convenience, and a painless life. They've become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they don't have these, if they don't have comfort, convenience, painless life, then they think something has gone wrong. And one result of this attitude is a severe restriction of our spiritual growth. For God intends us to grow through trials. And we wonder why the the church in America is so anemic. Because we say, along with the culture, if God were good, he would remove us from difficulty. That is not God's voice. That's the voice of one who would love to rob you of your growth and transformation in Christ. And so in the midst of that, it's so easily, easy for us to forget uh, our, our place and, our, and, and, and God's goodness to us. But also God's discipline, the difficulty that he brings in, proves his loving intention for us. So we already read it, but we, we've got to get it in our mind from this perspective. The second half of five and six, my son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. The idea of discipline uh, comes from the the root word for child. It's basically to to train up and raise a child. That's the the root of the word discipline uh, in the Greek. And to, to reprove someone is to correct them, to train them, to redirect them, or even to expose them, maybe a bad uh, thought process, um, kind of a heart motive that's wayward. Uh, So to reprove has this idea of us being seen and exposed. But then there's also that word chastise. Um, That is a harsh word, just in fairness. 
Um, So the second half of six, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son. Only a couple translations push the English probably in the direction uh, that's strong enough, and and it's, it's the ones that translate it scourge. The Lord scourges every son that he receives. Uh, It's the same word that is used of all the times when Jesus was flogged before his crucifixion. I'm not saying that that God is there with a whip. But I think God is pushing towards, in, in saying this, that God may bring in very difficult things into our lives. Not necessarily uh, something light, so that he might bring about his goodness. This is really a quote from Psalm, uh, or Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. He says, my, my son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. It's the sense that the the delight of God over you as his children actually leads him to discipline us. It's his delight that that, uh, he, he enters in. The discipline of God proves that you are his child. That seems very opposite of what we would tend to think. The discipline of God is evidence of God's love for you. So without sonship or without adoption, without us being his kids, uh, discipline seems cruel, doesn't it? It's just discipline or, or punishment for punishment's sake. But in the context of us being sons and adopted sons of God, discipline is not cruel. Actually, you would say the opposite. If there's sonship and adoption, to have no discipline from the father is actually the cruel thing because it's like this sonship says i accept you fully i adopt you you're mine but without discipline that father is saying this i'm gonna leave you right where you are in your incompleteness in your brokenness i accept you fully but i don't love you enough to actually help you grow that is not love And that's not the Father's love. So the key words in this passage are Father, Son, and Discipline. If you look at discipline only without the context of the loving Father pursuing a son, you're going to feel like this is maybe the the most cruel passage uh, in the Scriptures. But but also if you hear Father without the sense of discipline, you're not going to rightly understand. You're going to feel like God has not held up his end of the bargain. And this concept is all through the scriptures. In Revelation 3, we looked at this about a year ago, that those whom I love, God said, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, have zeal to repent. But then the next verse has nothing to do with evangelism. It has everything to do with us as God's people. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The context of I stand at the door and knock is God pursuing your heart and my heart as a loving father. That he's going to bring his discipline on us so that he might see us return to him. He's knocking at the doors of our heart as he disciplines his kids. 
So every good father disciplines his kids, but every kid hates discipline, right? Our, our children this morning proved it. Uh, you know, the, but that's the entire point. The entire point is that children would rather stay in their foolishness. Children would rather stay in their destructive patterns rather than be corrected. You know, it's not what you want, but it's definitely what we need. You know, it's really uh, ultimately what we want, but that's the love of a father. To not give in to what a kid understands, but to give the, the child what they truly need. Now, if you're in middle school or high school, you're saying, you know, I'm not in elementary anymore. I am, you know, I'm well informed. I know what's going on. And my parents are, uh, they don't know and they don't understand. Give yourself about 10 years and you will realize that you were the one that don't understand, didn't understand and they were truly wise. But while you are right now uh, in the middle of pushing against your parents' discipline. Know that that is a natural move, but it's, a, it's one that is not a God-honoring move. God says to endure it, to accept it, to welcome it, because God is doing something amazing, just like your parents are attempting to do in your life. So Frederick Buechner, um, uh, he says this, uh, that romantic love is blind to everything except what is lovable and lovely. That's romantic love. That's us dating. We can only see the great and the good. But Christ's love sees us with terrible clarity and sees us whole. Christ's love, get this, Christ's love so wishes our joy that it is, so his love is ruthless against everything in us that diminishes our joy. Catch that? Christ's love is so powerful and so much desiring that we would understand and know his joy that he is ruthless against the things in your heart that push out the joy of knowing God. Your self-sufficiency drives out the joy that God can only bring. Yeah, we we can look at all the... the, um, the things we talk about that would be wayward um, behavior. And, and obviously, choosing a path that's not God's will drives out his joy. But let's talk to, uh, you know, the, the people he's writing to, these people that are in the church, and uh, the, the people who may be just going through the motions and being a part of that. And could it be that your attendance and your being around the church is actually keeping you from God? And God might push into that. And he might call that out. And so there's this sense where God is going to ruthlessly be against anything that pushes out our joy. And so you see that in verse 7 and 8. In verse 7 and 8, it is for discipline that you have have to endure. NIV, it, it is endure hardship as discipline because God's treating you as sons. So like, cheer up. You know, cheer up that your life is just being, you're buried right now. God is treating you as a loved, beloved son uh, 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 in his family. Um, for, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The picture here is that a a father would train up his son to basically be the heir of his fortune, the heir of um, his household and take over, you know, the family business and be the head of the family. So he's going to pour into that son to raise him up. One that might not be called a son, would he have the same investment? The writer of Hebrews is saying he would not because he's not training him up. And so no discipline equals you're not a son. You're not in the family. And so it's proof of the love of a father to us. But then our status as sons heals us, okay? And so uh, this is where that idea of sons being the heirs uh, is, is huge and important because it's an argument from the lesser to the greater, okay? It's a contrast between your earthly father and your heavenly father. Verse 9, uh, verse 9, so it's an argument from the lesser to the greater, because of this, because this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirits and live? So it's basically the earthly father disciplined you and you respected him for it. You know what? He didn't take my, you know, my junk and he pushed into that. He persevered and I respect him for it heavenly father how much more would his discipline be worth submitting to when we submit to his discipline we end up living and then he goes on next verse he says for they that's the earthly father disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he god disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness so not just the the earthly father's Uh, discipline and we respect them but an earthly father does it to the best wisdom that he can fathom okay he did it uh, the best according to his wisdom and he did that for the good of his children the heavenly father according to the wisdom of god who trumps any earthly father according to the wisdom of god he does it for our good and to bring us to holiness and so verse 11 is really amazing So for the moment, in the time, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's peaceful, not pleasant. Literally, it's sorrowful or sad rather than joyous. Okay, that that word for pleasant is actually joy. And the fact that joy gets repeated so many other times in this passage, it's from joy, it's sorrow to joy. That pain produces something that God is looking for. So Philip, Rant, uh, Philip Yancey, uh, many years ago, wrote an article um, talking about pain. And he was quoting um, a, a, a you know, world-renowned doctor on leprosy. And leprosy is just, you know, where, where your skin and your body just uh, starts to kind of uh, sh- shrivel up, wither away. He says this, and this is a little gross, but it, it's needed because pain leads to something. Uh, so this is what the doctor says. He says, um, he describes how leprosy patients lose their fingers and their toes. Not because the disease can cause uh, uh, decay and have those things um, uh, you know, not, uh, not that they would cause decay, but pre- precisely 
because they, the patients, lack pain sensations. So nothing warns them when water is too hot or a hammer handle is splintered and accidentally self-abuse destroys their bodies. That is sobering. But what is the place of pain that God uses it for our good? It is not, I'm going to inflict pain so I can inflict pain. Pain has a very strong purpose in our life. And what does it do? It yields. It pays back. It repays this sense of what God is bringing. Short-term pain, long-term results. Uh, That's the sense of any training, you know, this concept of of being in the gym. Short-term kind of training and endurance for a long-term payoff. Pain and struggle lead to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm going to skip those, uh, those references there. Um, and so here's what's sobering. Back about 10 years ago, 13 years ago now, uh, Jack um, Abramoff, I was unfamiliar. I didn't know that name, but some of you might. He was a p- political lobbyist in one of the greatest scandals uh, in our time. Um, and uh, he, wrote, uh, he was speaking in a Time magazine article. And he said, God sent me 1,000 hints that he didn't want me to keep doing what I was doing. But I didn't listen. And so then he sent a nuclear bomb. God in his gentleness as a father is not going to start at a nuke. God is going to start with a gentle drawing back. Isn't it interesting that we can just forget the word of God and kind of brush it off? We can go different things uh, and, uh, and all of that. And then when we miss the word of God, he, by his grace, escalates what he brings to us so that we might surrender to him. And that's what happens in verse 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. It's so easy when we're in the midst of difficulty, that we're just down and we're just not doing it. And, and God is saying, look up, lift your hands, strengthen your knees, get up and walk. Yes, it's painful, but it is for your good. John Piper would write um, in one of his books, don't waste your cancer. Don't slough off what God brings into your life. And this is a quote of Isaiah 35 um, and uh, verse 3. But we're going to look at verse 10 um, and and close on this. That that the whole concept is God bringing restoration to his people. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They'll come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow pain uh, and sighing shall flee away. It is what God brings into our life so that we might know him more. Are you one that's trying to get out of suffering with everything, every fiber of your being? You might be missing the gracious hand of God on your life that he's desiring to grow you and transform you and transform your faith. Let's pray. God, would you uh, take your word as we think of a concept that is very un-American, a God that would bring difficulty into our life? So many people would say, I, have, I want nothing to do with that, God. But yet, Father, 
we all know if you are a loving father to us, that is what we need. So God, thank you for loving us to the place, even to the place that we don't want you to love us. So God, draw us close. I pray that you would uh, help us understand um, not just uh, what you're doing, but God, uh, how you might be drawing us uh, to yourself. Father, draw us near uh, for those who feel discouraged, weary, faint-hearted, like you've abandoned them and forgotten them. Father, I pray that your spirit would refresh them and encourage them of uh, um, this morning of their place uh, as your children. Father, for those who have never placed their faith in you this, uh, before, God, would today be the day of salvation? Would you draw people uh, to trust and submit to you? And so, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, use it for your glory and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.